0: Break, Hoffman. This is
1: The Hoffman Show from Studio B, if you will. Uh, so just in case you hear any banging in the background of this or any crashes in the background of this podcast, um, they're doing work on my house. And I've had to move from my room to my living room because it's on the opposite side of where they're doing the work. But when people are banging against the side of your house... It's rather disruptive when you're doing something in an audio medium. So I am trying to focus through the bang, bang, bang of the siding of my house being taken off and my deck being replaced. Uh, But hopefully the microphone is not picking that up and you, the listener, won't know other than me telling you. Um, As for what's on the show today, NBA Finals talk, also talk about Muhammad Ali. I will tell you that tomorrow, Wednesday, I am talking with Nancy Lieberman's special one-off edition of the podcast. That will probably just be that interview. Um, Nancy is... Someone who has had a major impact in my life uh, ever since I met her and coached in her camp and have had the chance to be around her. She's just a wonderful human. And her hero and someone who was her friend was Muhammad Ali. And so we're going to talk to Nancy tomorrow about Muhammad Ali. I will talk about Muhammad Ali and call it a wrap today. Other than that, it's the NBA Finals. Raz Goldan Wude, the Warriors sideline reporter on television during the season and a big part of their coverage during the playoff run, is going to join me. In about uh, 10 minutes or so. And then Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN.com. Coming up in about 20-25 minutes. Uh, he and I actually have already talked. And he has some really good stuff on the Warriors. And, and whether or not the Cavaliers have hope. And it was during that interview with Kevin. That I arrived at a conclusion. That I would arrived at before while watching. But just in my question asking. I got mad at myself for, for not kind of framing everything through this prism and I guess I'll start with the prism the prism is that the Cavs have no chance because they're playing the Warriors it's not because the Cavs aren't good it's not because LeBron isn't great and one of the five best players to ever play basketball it's not because of anything involved with Cleveland as a sports town in their history that they're cursed it's not involved with Cleveland and this current basketball team absent of any curse it has to do with the fact that the Warriors are the best freaking team ever. And I'm supposed to say one of the best teams ever, and I guess I can't really prove that they are the best ever, the best I've ever seen, and I honestly think that they would beat any team in the history of the league. And part of that is just the natural evolution of the game. They count by threes, and previous to them and the last 10 years, everyone counted by twos. The two pointer was the basis of whether it be the Showtime Lakers, the 86 Celtics, um, the 95 96 Bulls, whose record they broke in the regular season. Like all these teams were working for twos, not threes. And eventually, you got to start counting by three to keep up with these guys. And that's what the Thunder did. The Thunder were able to count by three when they were being competitive in that series because they had Andre Robertson hitting threes. You got to make a certain amount just to make the math work. This isn't math. This isn't you know strategy X's and O's. It's just simple math, and obviously Cleveland has struggled mightily and barely taken any threes in this series, and it's a huge reason why they're down. But the the, the point in all of the analysis should end with well, this is hard because the Warriors are the best team ever. So any analysis of the Cavaliers has to be framed within that. The Cavaliers, the Thunder, the Spurs are all championship-worthy teams in most years of the NBA's history. Maybe not 1986, when the Celtics were amazing. What pick your your best Lakers team of the eighties? A lot of people think it's the '84, the '85 team. I can't remember which one, but it's, it's one of those two. It happened very close proximity to those '86 Celtics, um, the '95, '96 Bulls, just monstrous and uh, how good they were. The 2000-2001 Lakers um, that, that ran rough shot through the playoffs and were just exceptional. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal at the peak of his powers and Kobe coming into his own, uh, although still young, had already established himself as one of the very best players in the league. So you can pick all these teams and you'll go back to the, the Celtics of the 60s and whatever, and then you start counting for athletic difference and all those kinds of things. Um, And then you have to say, okay, well, which set of rules are we playing by? I realize that making this argument is really difficult in terms of best team ever and you can never arrive at a right answer. But realize that the Warriors are in that conversation and because of that, anything talking about the Cavaliers is somewhat moot. This team is really bleeping good. But just saying that isn't enough. It's explaining why they're good and why that is causing hellish problems for the Cavaliers. For instance, the Cavs try to thrive on mismatches. Well, you don't get mismatches with the warriors. You know, where LeBron posting up any number of whoever's in the Eastern Conference is fine. If all of a sudden you switch on uh, your two guard onto LeBron and that two guard is Klay Thompson, it's a little bit harder cuz Klay Thompson's a great defender and he's strong and he's big and he's long and he's athletic and he's got great hands. Andre Iguodala is big, strong, athletic, bigger, stronger and and more athletic than Klay Thompson and he has some of the best hands I've ever seen. And he's the guy that you're trying to get off of LeBron James. And he's not that easy to get off of LeBron James. And by the way, if you get him off of LeBron James and then the ball swings away and doesn't get back to LeBron fast enough, they'll switch back because the Warriors communicate that well. And something I want to talk to Roz about is their communication because she's courtside for all of these games. They communicate exceptionally well and they are so smart to know what to communicate. There's a possession uh, in game two where Steph Curry winds up on LeBron and off the ball, Clay Thompson grabs Steph and throws him on to Richard Jefferson, and Clay takes LeBron. It results in a shot clock violation because they can't get the ball to Richard Jefferson on the post fast enough to try and take advantage of Steph Curry, which is much easier said than done to begin with. That's just the defensive end where switching in the annals of NBA history is seen as the devil by coaches because it's quote-unquote an excuse to not play defense. Um, It's seen as lazy as opposed to fighting through and over picks. For the Warriors, it's not. It's smart because they communicate it so well and because when they switch, they still have an adequate defender on your offensive player because they have so many like size players who are all exceptional in their fundamentals defensively and understand exactly what they're asked to do within a scheme to funnel to help the right places or if they're on an island understand how they're supposed to play and they do it and execute at an exceptionally high level that is why this team is so difficult that is why this team is great because they can execute schemes that are superior in concept but often flawed in execution See what Cleveland is doing on defense against a Warriors offense that calls for literal perfect execution if you do not want to get slaughtered. The Cavs are trying to switch and they are getting confused and there is miscommunication. It is not ingrained into every fiber of their being like it is for Golden State. It is not a part of who they are to communicate at that level on defense. So you have backdoor cuts all the time for layups and dunks, and you're getting the lobs to Andrew Bogut and Festus Ezeli on a somewhat regular basis when those players are in the game. You are getting mismatches where Curry can pull up for three or Clay Thompson gets loose for a three. Or you wind up with Andre. Like, even if they execute, then Andre Iguodala or Draymond Green, who are adequate shooters when they're in rhythm and wide open, are getting great looks. They've actually done a decent job on Curry and Thompson, but the way they're helping means that other players are able to get shots that are not too difficult for them, and the results are they're making them. Will that change some on the road? Sure, but this team's so confident right now, I wouldn't count on it. The Warriors' skill from top to bottom and their basketball intelligence causes other teams. To execute at a level that they are not capable of on a regular basis. That is why this is one of the best teams ever. And they also require a level of talent that most rosters just don't have. Not, there's not enough talent in the NBA for many teams to have this kind of talent. And a unique talent such as the, what the Thunder have. This length and athleticism that you need as a prerequisite to even think about competing with the Warriors. Cavaliers just don't have it doesn't mean they stink it's a bad matchup for them could they have won this team have won titles in the middle of the 2000s sure could they have competed maybe with the, the second wave of Lakers championships uh, and then those Celtics teams in 2008, 2009, 2010 yeah could they have even competed theoretically with LeBron's Heat maybe Although Wade and Bosch still in their primes, uh, I think that would have been a tough challenge. But it would have been a lot closer. This Warriors team isn't those teams. With all due respect, those are champions. These guys are legends, the way they're playing right now. This team is legendary. That's something greater than championship level. That is why Cleveland looks like a mess. That is why Golden State looks great. And the problem is, people that don't realize that are having trouble processing that because it looks different than what we usually see. And this isn't physical force that we've seen where a shack and you go, oh my God, this is so easy to see why this guy is so dominant. It's different. It's a combination of intelligence and skill that overwhelms, not force. Because of that, people have a hard time comprehending it as dominance. Don't get it twisted. This is dominance. This is not about what Cleveland is not. This is about what Golden State is, and that is why they're going to win this championship probably five games, maybe even four. Who knows? Maybe they need six. They're going to win. They were always going to win. Even against the Thunder, while, yeah, had their doubts, were they in serious trouble? Yeah, I never gave up hope because this team's really damn good. And they're not just really damn good in the course of this NBA season. They're really damn good in the history of the NBA. If you don't believe, I don't know what to tell you. If I haven't explained it well enough here, I don't know what to tell you. You're just in denial. They're bleeping great. They're better than that. They're freaking legendary
0: craig hoffman
1: Roz gold wooday is the sideline reporter on warriors television now a three-time emmy award winner with the warriors broadcast crew i actually watched them quite a bit on nba league pass um i remember last year we're seeing Roz for the first time going man this girl's really good uh, a lot of people clearly agree she's blown up over the past year doing some national stuff for turner as well on tnt Roz, you are incredibly busy thank you thank you thank you for finding a little bit of time to squeeze me in here
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, pumped
1: to be on. So this team uh, is obviously off to a great start in these NBA Finals. And I want to talk to you in a second uh, about something that I think you're going to have a unique perspective on in in terms of their communication, because I think that's something that's huge from you being on the sidelines. But I want to just start with the level of confidence. When you talk to, whether it's players, coaches, whatever, behind the scenes before this series started, how confident were they then? And then how confident are they now up two zero 0 as they head to Cleveland?
2: This is a very confident group. Um, I certainly think last year's playoffs helped them a lot, actually speaking with Sean Livingston um, in the regular season even. He said last year's playoffs really helped them with their poise and confidence um, in tough games going down 2-1 um, a few times last year. Um, and certainly going down 3-1 against OKC and coming back and winning it kind of felt like if they could do that, they could get over the hump for sure. I also think there's an urgency that having made it past going down 3-1 to OKC, they came into the NBA Finals with. You know, Stephen Curry said he wants to, to treat Game 1 of the NBA Finals the way they were treated Game 7. And I, I think that, you know, there's a feeling that, okay, we were able to overcome this. Let's not play around with the Finals. Um, they're a confident group, Uh to the point that even when they were down 3-1 to OKC, this is a team that dug, that dug deep immediately in the locker room. It was Draymond Green who addressed the team uh, in Cleveland, in uh, Oklahoma City after game four, and it was a really bad you know, blowout and discouraging, and people had counted them out. And he said, we're the team uh, that has proven people wrong all season long. We're the team that got to 73-9. and we're a team with a, two-time unanimous MV- with a two-time MVP, first unanimous. We've been doing things no other team has done all season long. Let's continue to surprise people. We know what we're capable of. And he also said, we need to hold each other accountable. We need to hold ourselves accountable. And he raised his hand. If you remember, this is when he was kind of in a funk a little bit, especially with kicking in today. Yeah, that's being nice. Incident. He was
1: awful. In yeah. his two games in Oklahoma City.
2: And he raised his hand and said, let's all look in the mirror. Starts with me. I can be better.
1: Wow. Yeah, and obviously they were, and and now here we are. Um, I think what part of what makes this team so special is just the personalities, the selflessness, and then the intelligence on and off the floor. Um, As you've been around this team over the past couple of years and just collecting stories, some of which you've probably shared on the sidelines, many of which you've shared on the sidelines uh, with your TV viewers— um, are there a, Is there a specific anecdote maybe that you can share with me about the intelligence and the selflessness of this team um, that really stands out to you and, and that's what makes this team special?
2: Well, I think people just really fall in line. You know, Steve Kerr uh, said something that, you know, has always stuck with me now um, in playoffs, and he said, it's not just a collection of people whose skills on the court mesh together well, it also must be a collection of personalities that mesh together well, and, and that's what the Warriors really have. People fall in line nicely. You know, Draymond Green gets to be the vocal and emotional igniter for this team. Steph and Clay are great players. Steph, you know, two-time MVP. He leads in his own right, um, you know, more of a by-example guy, but also can, also speaks up when needed. Um, but, you know, the veteran guys speak up and are respected. Andre Gudal is a very high IQ basketball player. He's often sharing insights with his teammates, and he doesn't do it for show. He doesn't need to be called out and noted as, uh, you know, this big vocal guy. It's more like he'll go over and talk to a guy one-on-one and, and share his thoughts. And Andre um, is a really important piece that makes the team go. He's, you know, in some ways like a, a father on the team, a wise, you know, leader, a veteran, uh, definitely leader of the second unit, uh, and even Harris he responded against LeBron James in this final series that Andre is often coming to him talking about different ways to defend and things that are working and aren't working. Leandro Barbosa has a very calming effect on this team. He's also a very humorous guy. Some of the guys enjoy for his, uh, you know, all of the funny things that he brings to the table. But he's been leading the bench, um, coming off the bench, leading and scoring last game. He did that, and he's someone uh, who's been here before. And I spoke to him after after Game One, going into Game Two of the finals. And he said, he's on the bench. He said, even though my English isn't great, I'm talking to everyone on the bench. I'm pointing things out. I like to talk. And he said, these guys, they listen and they respect me. So I think people know their roles and are okay with them. No one's one's fighting each other for the spotlight. And this is a team that gets along, has chemistry, and trusts and respects each other.
1: Yeah, I think self-awareness is an incredible trait that this team has. I talked about it specifically with Sean Livingston after game one of how he, I mean, this is a guy in the modern NBA, and especially on this team, I think it was 12 threes he took this year, maybe it was 14, when you got Steph putting, you know, making 400, and just realizing that's not his game, and um, I think that goes to the personalities that you talked about, too. Absolutely. Um,
2: and Sean worked on his three-point shot a ton coming yeah. into the season. There was a lot of chatter, like, okay, this is going to be Sean's three-point season, and, uh, you know, it ended up not really being that. You said, you know, if I hit it, If I hit a three, it's going to be a big one. Um, And it's just also understanding your game and what's needed within the team. You know, he's not out there chucking up threes, even though he worked on it. He understands um, how he can best help the team. So I think you're completely right. Yeah, um
1: the communication on this team is just amazing. And I think it's, it's obviously because of the scheme that they play specifically on defense uh, with all the switching. It's so, so vitally important. You're on the sideline. You're, you're at a, at a place where you can hear these guys talking. How different is, are the warriors from the communication standpoint compared to basically any other team when you watch them on the defensive end from your position on the sidelines? I
2: think communication is really important. And I think, Communication is a part of trust, right? You know, yeah. you look at a situation. Yeah. I'm going to point out Andre Iguodala's defense on Kevin Durant or Andre Iguodala's defense on LeBron James. You know, people will often say, gosh, you're doing a great job one-on-one with this guy. And Andre would be the first to point out, you know, it's a team effort. He needs to trust his teammates that they're in the position to help side because these, these are the greatest players in the world. You know, you're not really going to stop them one-on-one. And you also need to hear his teammates, and that comes with trusting that they're not going to be lazy, that they're going to talk, that they're going to communicate and share where they are on the court, what side to shade these guys to defensively, you know, where he can funnel this player into help, you know, because really what he's trying to do is take these guys off of their spots, contest shots, just make it a little bit harder. These are these are the top, you know, three players in the world he's been guarding, you know, so uh, it's communication has been fundamental to the Warriors defense and, and two of the great communicators that Andre Udala points out, uh, Andrew Bogut and Draymond Green. Those two in particular do a really great job of playing quarterback of the defense and letting him know kind of where he needs to go. And um, the Warriors defense in this fi- final series against the Cavs has been the key. I mean, they've held the Cavs that have been playing small ball faster, more threes to Seven threes in the first game, five threes in the second game. This is a team that averaged fourteen, that made more threes than the Warriors did coming into this. They're holding them, they hold held them in the uh, game two to thirty-five percent shooting. I mean, they've really slowed the pace of the game down for Cleveland. They focused it on transition defense. They and and by slowing the pace, it affects J.R. Smith, it affects Kyrie Irving. Then the threes don't go down. The court tightens. It's easier to kind of. Be around LeBron James defensively, and it's a it's a trickle down effect. And defense starts good communication.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I want to kind of now wrap up with this question, and and take the premise of the the first ones I asked about. You know, the confidence and the intelligence and the personalities and the communication all coming together um, and then put you back in your playing days when you were playing at Stanford, obviously a very, very high level women's program, and you played against the other best teams, whether it be a UConn or whoever was at the top of the sport when you were playing, besides, you know, your program, which was very, very successful. Um, how difficult is it to play against a team? that knows exactly what they're doing, has no hesitation, and then obviously has the skill level to be able to execute it. Like how different is that game? Because I, I started the podcast today saying this isn't about the Cavaliers, this is about the Warriors and that they are just this good. So if you can kind of put yourself in a player's perspective, say from Cleveland side and going against that and just that mental challenge of of playing against a team that is this confident, this smart, and this together.
2: And this deep, you know, I, I think not only yeah. are the Warriors talented, but they're coming at the Cavs in waves right now. You know, the, 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 the Cavs had a pretty solid game plan for Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, but it's hard when you, you're getting consistently, you know, 35 to 45 points off the bench uh, from the Warriors in game one, too. You know, and they're totally, completely different looks. Not only do you have a lot of different players, Who can score for the Warriors? LeBron James pointed out, LeBron James also pointed out, the Warriors have a lot of guys who are playmakers. So Mm -hmm. even if they're not scoring, they're making basketball happen. They're making passes happen that are creating scoring plays for others. And you've got to really be watching as a team. The Warriors are beating the Cavs as a team. You know, this is not one guy stepping out. Uh, You know, game one, so far, Sean Livingston played hero. Game two, Draymond Green, you know, five threes. But Consistently, the bench has showed up. Consistently, everyone has played great team defense, um, and it's something the Warriors have been doing all season long. You know, this isn't new. All season long, Steve Kerr committed to strength in numbers, playing his entire, you know, his entire roster. So these guys are being thrown out there on the court. It's not the first time they've been there. Um, and there, I think you know, Jaron Collins said to me once. He said. I think we were really great in the playoffs last season when we were leaning on our depth. And that's what the Warriors are doing right now. No one's fatigued. Everyone is in rhythm. Everyone's in flow um, because everyone's touching the ball and moving it. And uh, they are playing their style of basketball. And, you know, really discouragingly for the Cavs, I mean, the Warriors have taken them out of everything they wanted to do as a basketball identity. Um, to the point now people are saying, should the Cavs go big? I mean, even if they do, I mean, that would be a really drastic change from everything they've done under Coach Lou. So, um, the Cavs are in a really tough spot right now, and uh, they got to make a move here at home.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I think that's such a an interesting quote from Jaron Collins because it's the exact opposite of what most teams do in the playoffs where they, they tighten the rotation and focus more on their stars. The Warriors are so good and so deep that they don't have to do that and, in fact, are better when they don't. Um, Roz, thanks so much for giving me a few minutes. I'm thrilled to see how you've just blown up over the past year. Um, you're doing a great job. Keep it up and uh, enjoy the rest of the finals.
0: All right, thanks so much. Craig Hoffman.
1: Kevin Artovitz is a writer for ESPN.com, works with their True Hoop stuff, whether that be the True Hoop TV, True Hoop TV podcast, writes for ESPN.com, does a whole bunch of cool stuff. And Kevin, I thought it was really interesting earlier in the playoffs is, you know, a lot of the guys and in, in, whether it's Tom Habershow or Amin el and, and some of the, the guys in the True Hoop network, and you've done work like this and kind of pairing our eye tests to... The actual results and, and figuring out okay, and, and using it as a predictive measure. So I remember like Amin did um, the piece on on how much that that certain teams were hitting their threes. Uh, the Cavaliers were hitting their threes compared to their expected. When you look at a series, you know the first two games of these NBA Finals, I think it's really interesting because they've played out in a way that many people didn't expect. We expected a competitive series. So it's a long winded introduction of saying, is there any hope that this series can all of a sudden get competitive when we start looking at how these teams have played, or is this a, an actual domination by the Warriors in all assets as the scores would indicate?
0: I mean, it's a pretty good domination. And one thing people are on the Warriors, you know, Oakland after coming out of game one, were very reassured by was the fact that, and I don't think you need any advanced stats to see this, that, that, that you know, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry had been contained and yet they'd still won decisively. Um, that didn't change a lot last night. I mean, Cleveland has has made its strategy pretty well known, which is we're going to stop or attempt to stop or contain Steph Curry and Clay Thompson we're going to take our chances with the other guys. This is not a novel strategy. This is this is a strategy that has been applied by many teams facing sort of superstar-laden teams with one or two options and, and then sort of let the chips fall where they may. If that guy beats you from that distance, well, so be it. Um, and, and, you know, what, we, what we're finding is, is like, uh, it, in some ways, yes, there, that, that, that strategy is working in so far as you know, Clay Thompson is not getting a better selection of shots than he got in the regular season or even first three rounds. Steph Curry is actually getting a worse quality of shots. So, you know, bravo to the Cavs for doing what they set out to accomplish. The problem is not that. The problem is, is that, you know, the game plan has failed insofar as, like, Andre Iguodala is getting fantastic shots right now. Uh, Draymond Green is getting a lot of open shots. Andrew Bogut is getting a good collection of shots. Harrison Barnes is getting a Quality of shop better than what he got in the first three rounds and in, in, in the regular season. So, you know, it, it, it's a problem in the sense that I think when you play Eastern Conference basketball and the strategy you employ is hey let somebody other than DeRozan and Lowry beat us, it's not fraught with the same kind of risks. But you know, Draymond Green is not some like schlub. <laughs> you know, Andre Iguodala is just far too heady, um, you know, to leave open and, and to give space to make plays. Or you know, he's not a great shooter, but he can not hit. Shots down, and more than anything, if you give him space, he will find a way to leverage that space into a good opportunity. Often, not for himself, and because you have guys who are the supporting cast who can move the ball, it's really problematic. I mean, it's one thing when, hey, let let three through eight beat us, because you know each of those guys is is fundamentally flawed, or or can't really make a play, or all they can do is shoot because if they try to put it on the floor, well, they're not really you know great playmakers and, and therein lies sort of who the warriors are which is if you take away those two guys they've got other guys who can beat you many ways i mean it's not a great shooting team outside of those two guys but what it is is you know each of them can can if given space if given opportunities if given advantage over a defense uh, they can totally exploit it and that's what's been going on um i'm surprised it's been as uncompetitive as it has been the first two games but i also i mean we we've been watching basketball far too long to know that history is littered with series where the first two games are decisively won by the home team. And then game three, you know, the home team answers back. And, oh, by the way, a series can't be closer than 2-1 after three games. You know, so if Cleveland holds serve, then they hold serve. And then we're right back where we are. We're on schedule for a seven-game series. I think the Warriors are the superior team, but I I am not ready to call it yet. Uh, All I'm ready to do is say that the Warriors have out- you know, played them thoroughly uh, and are clearly the better team.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not ready to call it any more than I was before the series in which I said the Warriors are probably going to win and, and probably going to win without needing all seven games. Um, and they might only need five games the way the schedule plays out. But uh, as you said, they, they haven't, you know, done anything but win at home technically. And in the NBA, there are decisive home and road splits, especially when you get away from the star players, the very best. So, is Cleveland better off sticking with this strategy and hoping that now all of a sudden on the road, players three through eight will not perform as well? Or should they go, okay, we need, if if, if we're going to lose this team, we need it to happen by Steph and Clay combining for 80 points and they're just going to have to single-handedly topple us as opposed to letting five or six or seven other skilled basketball players beat us.
0: I mean, and this is going to sound like a cop-out of an answer. I mean, I, I think part of the problem here for Cleveland, and not to get too zen about it, is they're asking the wrong questions. Like, I, I think this idea that to defeat the Golden State Warriors, you go into the laboratory and say, which guy are we going to take away, and which guy are we going to let score, is sort of problematic. Like, I, I think the answer is, is, is you have to subscribe to a certain set of principles. And, you know, if you're going to devote disproportionate attention Um, then that's fine, provided... Like, you can do that if you know how to communicate behind those traps. If you know how to, you know, when you've got clay smothered at 30 feet, you know how to zone up the rest of the floor. Like, I'm for that strategy when you have the personnel to execute it. Like, when you are cohesive enough of a defensive unit to be able to pull it off. Like, I, I think... I don't think there's a correct... I don't think there is a way to beat the Warriors so much as a... like. Can you pick a game point and then execute it perfectly? And I think there are times that personnel that warrant doing the sort of let let the other guys beat you. There are time there are certain personnel collections of personnel that where the hey actually let's take away the Draymond Green playmaking and and kind of play them straight up and and, and let the chips fall where they may work. I, I think with Cleveland it's not it, it, it's right now just a, a fundamental lack of execution on whatever it is they're doing now they did kind of switch up the defense a little bit in game two um further in they kind of stopped running a lot of those blitzes and you know they 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 they, they pulled back a little bit um but i think at that point the 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 lawyers just grown so comfortable that you know it didn't really matter and i I think we will see so it's it to me the problem is not so much which plan it's the quality of execution of whichever plan you take, and I think a lot of that they still have to figure out what they want to do. I mean, last night they decided that hey, Channing Fry, who was sort of this great world beater, and and the answer to a lot of questions we had about Cleveland, which is are they adaptable? Are they versatile? Can they stretch and stay, you know, uh, with, with some size on the floor? This was heralded as sort of this miracle. I mean, you had you know you had broadcasters saying, hey, yeah, take a bow, David Griffin, for acquiring Channing Fry. and then last night. You know, Ty Lue decides. Well, you know, actually, it, we're, we're we're a better look with it, with Richard Jefferson in that in that role when, when the Warriors have the sort of their, their lineup of depth, small lineup on the floor. So, you know, I, I think at this point, Cleveland has to go back to the drawing board, figure out what assets it has, what liabilities it's willing to risk, and you know, figure out how they want to play him. It was really kind of a weird flailing of, oh, all of a sudden, look, it's it's Timothy Mozgov and Tristan Thompson together. We're going to go super conventional. You know, only after they've sort of fallen down. And I don't know what that was in response to necessarily, other than, hey, you know, maybe maybe we just need to kind of be defend. You know, and then there was some talk about that last night where, all right, well, you know, we actually have to have our best defensive unit on the floor. And, and, and we'll just hope and pray that LeBron can can conjure up the offense required to stay competitive. But maybe we were better off last year. Not so much when we didn't have, you know, you want know, say, like, you, because they didn't have a Kyrie or, or Kevin Love, but that. Uh, that ultimately the best way or to have the best way to have the best shot against the Warriors is to have your best defensive unit on the floor and then figure it out from there. Kind of Memphis is the team that has been most competitive against this team um, in the past two years. Why? Well, because they sort of just shrunk the floor a bit more, and of course they didn't have the firepower. But hey, they came closer than anyone, and maybe that's the recipe.
1: I hate the and it, it was worse. It's never been worse than it was with LeBron. The oh, can he actually win? Um, and I typically hate that question but I think in the case of Kyrie Irving it's at least somewhat fair to ask because I think his style of play is at least in this series obviously very questionable but is it about this series is winning with Kyrie Irving uh, being your second best player and a guy who dominates the ball the way he plays possible uh, at this point or is it just does it just look impossible because he's facing one of the best teams ever?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any particular qualms with Kyrie's offense across the board. I mean, I, I, I think he, when he attacks and he pressures the defense, he, he's really valuable. I mean, to me, the question is, is, and I think the question among many people around Cavaliers is, you know, is he interested in playing a championship brand of defense, and at what point is he going to become sort of passionate about learning the nuances of, of, of sort of how to play perimeter defense and how to really. You know, you know, fight against a pick and roll offense, and, and 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 take pride in the in the some smaller qualities of playing defense, like communication, and and you know, doing whatever it is you need to do for that big man who's covering for you while you figure out how to navigate across or under or through uh, a screen. And you know, to me, that's the question. You know, I asked a I asked a GM, you know, would you ever trade for Kyrie um, if the Cavs ever decided they needed, uh, you know, a more veteran presence or a more defensive-minded uh, competitor at that position. And you know, I was shocked at, to hear, like, no, it's just not a guy. You know, my, my my coach would be interested in dealing with, you know, constantly having to. You don't, you can't have championship players who need to be inspired to play defense or, or cajoled or, or sort of, you know, talked into it. That it should come sort of from their competitive spirit. And I, I think that's the question with Kyrie. I don't think the fact that he's a ball dominator is a problem. I mean. Man, those handles are fantastic. And, and, you know, we've seen throughout the playoffs, and we've had an incredible playoff run. And I think the question is when you get into a series that's just going to require, I mean, this is not the Toronto Raptors, it's not the Atlanta Hawks, it's not the Detroit Pistons. It just requires a different brand of competitiveness from the defensive end. You can't skate. You know, you can't, there's no way when you face the Golden State Warriors that you can get a lackluster effort as the point guard on the defensive unit and just hope, oh, and they will still only score 97 points per 100 possession, even if I play average defense. Which, by the way, every time you take the floor against Toronto or Atlanta or Detroit, you know, like there's a very good chance you can play very average defense and look very good doing it. And that just isn't the case against this team.
1: And that yeah, I think that's a great point, that, that you're right. Because Kyrie's problems, I mean, offensively, I think in the back half of game one, they got a little ISO heavy but really defensively, that intensity, and he's still so young, you wonder if he can learn it, and if this series is going to be a learning point for him, but uh, to me, this entire series, and we'll wrap up with kind of this thought, is much more about what Golden State is doing, as opposed to anything Cleveland is doing. They're just this good, and I don't know if we're running out of ways to describe it, or what, I don't really even know what the question is here, just, like, this team is so good, and I feel like it's somewhat being taken for granted, in that we're trying to pick apart, and look, we just did it for 10 minutes, trying to pick apart what Cleveland is doing quote-unquote wrong, and I think that the problem is, is they're, they're playing the Warriors, and if we... Has there been anyone or have you been able to encapsulate how great this team is and try to put it in perspective so that people can understand because I feel like that that's not really gotten through yet that we can throw out all of these solutions and all of these different things that we think Cleveland can do and part of this is in hopes that we get a competitive series. But in the end, the problem for the Cleveland is that they're playing of the team that's across from them
0: yeah, and that's ultimately it. I mean I've been joking you know there is this tendency we have and especially with these off days that you know, we just like, kind of take apart the calves and, you know, just sort of bury them. And, and, and possibly rightly so, but but at the end of the day, it's sort of like watching Animal Kingdom and sort of, you know, yelling at the television, why can't the prey outrun the cheetah? You know, <laughs> like, um, what is he doing? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's sort of kind of how I feel. Like, and it's not to say that, that the Cleveland shouldn't be concerned about their, uh, about their execution or, or their game plan, but it's also a function of, as you said, one team might just be decidedly better than the other um, by historical proportions, and and what do you do? Um, and, and therein lies the problem. I mean, I, I think uh, very few of us had the Cavs to win this series, you know. And uh, the, 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 there's a reason the Warriors are favored. And so, yeah. On one hand, you know, it's our job to sort of analyze and say, look, there are things that the Cavs could do to increase their probabilities to win. Um, You know, but on the other hand, you know, one team might just be decidedly better than the other and in probabilities be damned. Um, You know, they're not. There's a reason this team won 73 games.
1: Yeah. And that's in the end where you go, they can do everything well on both ends of the floor. They've proven over time their championship tested because they've already won the thing once. Um, and you just go, I, I don't know what else to say about them anymore because there are still people that want to doubt them and um, say that they're not historically great. And I, I think – or that the – we. I mean, here's the other thing. I'll, I guess well, this will be the real final question. Like, do you think the Cavaliers and the Thunder, you know, and, and the Spurs, you know, those those two teams were obviously – a terrific A in the playoffs for the Thunder, B in the regular season for the Spurs, and and the Thunder knocked the Spurs out. Like I'm not mistaken in saying those are championship level basketball teams. It's just that Golden State is something more than that, right? So this is not a case of a watered down league. This is a case of a singular team rising above what is typically championship level.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I mean, when you when you zoom out and kind of look down from thirty thousand feet in the air, you sort of look down and say like. Yeah, I mean, we we've seen you just name the four best teams in basketball. I think pretty, I feel pretty solid about saying that. And and so you're talking about the top, you know, in this case, the top 13 percent of the NBA, and then in, in the top three teams are the top 10 percent. And so um, again, I know that this isn't little league; not every team gets a trophy, and and there's no. But and I don't want to say, oh, there's no shame in being the third best team in a historic era, and that's who maybe the Cavs are, you know, third or four best team in basketball, but. Um, You know, again, it's sort of, and this is what makes life, and it's going to make life very difficult for Cleveland in the offseason if they lose this series. It's like, what do you do? You all want to end up, blow it up. Um, Or do you say, look, look, this 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 is our fate, right? Like, we have to sort of continue to be the second or third best team because you never know when the best team's going to get hurt or dysfunction is going to hit or something happens or politics infects the organization and they become, they lose their way you know golden state warriors do i don't know because you know Draymond finds himself suspended next postseason uh, for the kicking or or oh steph isn't able to recover from an injury or, or whatever and that your your job isn't as, as the second and third best team in the league is to figure out how to get better around the margins and oh by the way just stay healthy and stay focused and because you never know when that top team is going to falter and, and that sounds like really depressing and fatalistic but you know, it's, it's a question that Cavs are going to, have to ask themselves when they look around and say, oh, Kevin Love probably will command something on the trade market because he's got a very favorable contract under the context of the new cap. Or, wow, Kyrie Irving, we understand the limitations of his defense. There might be other teams that don't and are just tantalized by the idea of, you know, forking over a ton of assets. Um, and, and so it's going to be very challenging. That, that, to me, is sort of one of the things I'm watching, that if they can't get back in this series, how do they lose? What does the nature of the losing uh, what does that inform about their offseason process? Are they ready to blow it up, or are they ready to just say, hey, we just need to do a little better than, um, you know, we need to do a little better around the margins. Like our big three are very sound. We just need, you know, it can't be Richard Jefferson. We need a better version of Richard Jefferson to be that guy who, who's truly a, a fourth threat. Like, we, we need our fourth best player to be look a little bit more like Harrison Barnes. Uh, you know, whatever it is, and, and that's going to be really interesting to see, Uh, just how Cleveland responds to this sort of fatalistic idea that, like, hey, you're just consigned to be behind the Warriors and there's only nothing you can do about it. Well, what do you do when there's nothing to do about it?
1: Well, don't worry. It's not like any Cleveland team ever has had a fatalistic outlook before. Yeah, seriously. Oh, oh, wait, that's kind of their thing. Uh, Kevin Arnovitz writes for ESPN.com. Follow him on Twitter, at Kevin Arnovitz. Always appreciate the insight, my friend. Anything specific we should be looking for that you're about to to churn out that we we can look for?
0: Uh, I would say no. Uh, There's nothing specific. I'm working on some stuff for the long term and there'll probably be some stuff for the finals and some video stuff, but uh, nothing specific right now to
1: Tim. All right. We'll just keep on following at Kevin Arnovitz on Twitter and, and get the insight there. Kevin, always appreciate it, my man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Call it a wrap. Call it a wrap today with the loss of a legend and merely calling him a legend is a disservice because he was so much more than that. Maybe an icon could work um Muhammad Ali was simply the most famous human on earth for a long long period in his life um and and might still have been very up to earlier this week or this past weekend when he passed away um dies at the age of, of 74 after a long long battle with Parkinson's and um the memories that just started flowing in from reporters to uh, former opponents like George Foreman um, to friends and people who just idolized him as a man um, and as a sportsman they just they were amazing to read because the impact he had on so many and and the, the impact he had on the world is it, it would take years to try to fully explain I think the two things that stuck out to me the most were, or the two things at least that I want to talk about now are his bravado and understanding what that meant, and then his principle. I think that one's a le- little easier to understand, but it's important to frame properly and discuss. Um, even though it'll just be me talking but to kind of put out some perspective on it the bravado i'll talk about first real quickly and michael wilbon uh, was talking about ali and he really hit this home for me and it's impossible to understand i think without someone telling us for for people my age i'm in my mid-20s obviously was it's not around in the 1960s and have heard a lot about the the it was to be a black man at that time. Um, and obviously I would have a hard time understanding cause I'm not a black man anyway. Um, but to, to really hear it from Wilbon was, was stunning and to realize the importance of Ali's bravado and him telling people I'm pretty. It was the first time for, for Mike to hear someone who was black go like, I'm, I'm beautiful. I'm pretty.
0: Muhammad Ali was the most important man other than my father period there was a boldness he was completely unafraid I don't have a mark on my face yeah and I upset son and listen and I just turned 22 years old I must be the greatest right, I, I, told I told the world right. I am the king of the
1: world hold it hold it hold, I'm hold, it. hold it you're not that pretty I'm a bad man, man. 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 I took up the world I took up the world that Um, He said for him, and I'm sure this was the case for so many other black men and women at that time, was like, okay, I can be black and I can be beautiful and pretty and important and brash. And that had to be so powerful in a time where black people were being treated as second class citizens and less than human in this country. Sure, you know we're a hundred years removed from the end of the Civil War at that time, but like, as long as you've gotten past like fifth grade, you know American history, and know that the segregation was still very real, and that uh, separate but equal was maybe uh, uh, something that was was put into law that, but the equal part certainly wasn't true. You know, at this point, we're with you know we're ten years after or 20 years after Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And um, we're still, you know, Martin Luther King and and all of this, his assassination and and all the things that led up to that with the progress that he was able to make and Malcolm X and the things that he was talking about and then his assassination. This is all going on at that time, um, depending on where we are on the Muhammad Ali timeline. And then obviously Ali standing up for himself and and being a conscientious conscientious objector to the Vietnam War based on his religious beliefs and hell his religious beliefs itself was an incredible source of controversy and a source of why many people hated him, changing from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali and becoming a Muslim. But before we get to that just think about that. like you're being told societally speaking it may not be people coming up to you directly and telling you that you're ugly and you whatever. Um but it's society telling you, and surely there was what's well, direct forms of racism, but it's society telling you that you are less than whatever the white man is. And Muhammad Ali's there on television, I'm pretty. Man, that I think was a really cool perspective from Will Bond. and I'm sure it's a perspective shared by so many black men that are men now but were boys at the time that saw that and said you know what i'm pretty too i can be beautiful i can be brash i can be me i can be unapologetically me and i think that's a huge part of the black identity now um and that makes a lot of white people frankly uncomfortable i i'm not one of them um but There are certainly members of the quote-unquote establishment that that are still uncomfortable with those who are unapologetically black. And Muhammad Ali did it in the 1960s. Then, of course, there was his principle, the most obvious example being his conscientious objection to the Vietnam War based on his religious beliefs.
2: I will not go 10,000 miles from here to help murder... And kill another poor people simply to continue the domination of white slave masters over the darker people of the earth.
1: He had no, no quarrel with the Viet Cong, and so he decided he didn't want to fight, and that his, his religion said that he couldn't do that. He went to jail for it, and he lost the four probably most prime years of his boxing life to it three to four years. From 25 to 29. Stunning. Because that doesn't happen now. There's no way it happens now. Or could it? Well, it depends. The stakes are higher, monetarily speaking. Ali lost a lot of money. But now if LeBron James says, I'm not doing this. Whatever this is. Uh... And that costs him a chance to play basketball because of some principle he's standing on. He's losing, risking hundreds of million dollars, not just from the Cavaliers in the NBA, but from the marketing money. Nike owns LeBron James as much as you can own another human, as much as a corporation can own a human. LeBron James' number one loyalty is not to the Cleveland Cavaliers. It is to Nike with whom he might have a $1 billion shoe contract, an apparel contract. Whatever Nike wants, LeBron's going to go, yeah, okay, got it. And LeBron is someone who has spoken out on issues, but speaking out and doing what Ali did, that's two different levels. And it's because he was so principled. It was because he firmly believed what he believed, and he was not willing to compromise under any circumstances. It's something that the American political sphere could use tremendously right now. I mean, Paul Ryan is is saying Donald Trump is a textbook racist, but we're going to endorse him and vote for him anyway, because his party, quote unquote, needs that. They need to be behind their candidate. No, you don't. If you're principled and you believed, which so clearly Paul Ryan does, and I don't want to pick on, you know, make this super political, but like, it's a great example in, in modern times. It's so clear Paul Ryan doesn't want to do what he feels he needs to do in the name of the Republican Party, but he's doing it anyway. He's quote-unquote being convinced. No, he's not. He's just slow playing it to try to downplay some of the backlash. If you don't like it, stand up and go, no, I'm not doing this. And doing that would be small peas compared to what Muhammad Ali did risking jail and going to jail and f- not throwing away because he didn't feel like he threw it away he sacrificed prime years of his career and it's just stand- it's a, it, it's so simple it's standing up for what is right but doing it is really hard um and and I don't want to quite obviously I don't want to compare myself to Muhammad Ali but so when I wrote the article that I wrote for Jason Barrett's website, sportsradiopd.com, about my thoughts on where the industry is and where it's going, I got pushback from people in hiring positions that I knew that are mentors to me that said, "What are you doing? You didn't need to write this." And I said, "I know." And while I wasn't risking jail or you know, death threats and the impossible things that Muhammad Ali, without hesitation, Risked in taking a stance that he felt was important and that was true to who he was. I wasn't risking any of that. I was risking, I guess, jobs and perception within the industry, but I felt it was right. And quite frankly, if people didn't want to hire me because of the things I said, then I don't want to work for that person. Because I see a problem and it's so small comparatively, but it's within the industry that I exist. And I said, this is a problem and it needs to be talked about. And there was a chorus of younger people in the industry and older people in the industry going, yes, yes, this is correct. Thank you for, for speaking up. But it takes people speaking up. And in Ali's case on a much, 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 much greater issue with much, much, much more severe consequences, history wound up proving him right. Both in the short term, when the Supreme Court overturned his conviction of draft dodging and saying, yes, no, he was a conscientious objector based off his religious beliefs and we cannot put him in jail for that. Supreme Court voted, I believe it was eight to nothing at the time, to say, "Nope, we... That's, that's not okay. And then in the long term, he's seen as a hero for it. It's a powerful message that standing up for what is right, if it is truly right, and that's the important thing, it has to be truly right. That standing up for what's truly right in the end is the right thing to do. That is the message of Muhammad Ali's life. And time and time again... He did what was right. And it's amazing coming from a man who got his fame and fortune from punching people in the face. And doing it better than anyone we've ever seen. But at the end, he was a principled human being. And everyone you talk to will say that if they spent time around Muhammad Ali, their life is better for it. One of those people is Nancy Lieberman, who considered Muhammad Ali her hero amongst her heroes. Uh, I'll talk with Nancy tomorrow about the impact that Muhammad had on her life. And in turn, as I as I was texting with her yesterday, I, I'm so grateful that he did have that impact because she's had, a, a, I, I guess, a similar impact on me. Being around Nancy makes me want to be a better person. She She pushes me by her mere existence in my life to be a better person. What better better legacy could you possibly leave um i could have played a million quotes from ali we'll end the podcast with this one um thanks for listening and uh see you tomorrow to talk about muhammad ali's legacy with nancy thanks to raz thanks to kevin rest in peace to the champ he was simply the greatest
0: what would you like people to think about you when you've gone i'd like for them to say he took a few cups of love He took one tablespoon of patience, one teaspoon of generosity, one pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, one pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith, and he stirred it up well. Then he spread it over a span of a
2: lifetime, and he served it to each and every deserving person he met.